Amen. Thank you so much. Good morning. So good to be with you in the midst of obviously the uh, what sometimes seems to be the inopportune moments for snow to come down. And yet here we are. We praise God for that. A couple of thoughts as I open up God's word to Acts 20 this morning. Uh, first of all, thank, if you will, Steve Erdo, if you haven't done so already. He's been plowing since about 4.30 this morning and has been out and about and just handling all the responsibility that's necessary to be able to make certain that we've got good pathways to be able to walk in uh, when we're dealing with multiple parking lots and so on. It's important to be able to make our way into this building. Second of all, at the end of uh, today's exposition as we're leaving, look out for one another, if you would. Uh, not only those that are in this uh, setting, but also those that are in the equipped that are making their way out into the parking lot, uh, make certain that if there are those that are struggling to get into their vehicles, that uh, we are looking out, making certain that all is being taken care of and all is well with one another. Love for you to take your Bibles now, if you haven't done so already, as we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. We're making our way now to Acts chapter 20, in verse 17 and down through verse 24 this morning. The Apostle Paul, as we noted last week, had his entire itinerary that he thought he had mapped out, completely redone, reorganized by God. God has a way, you see, of uh, controlling the itineraries of our lives, doesn't he? The events of life, the timing of life, the people who come in and out of our lives, it's all part of God's sovereign plan, and we are to be managers, but God is the owner of all such things. Well, now, here we find that the Apostle Paul is positioned in a setting known as Miletus. It's roughly about 30 miles southward from Ephesus, and it's in Miletus, still another harbor setting, where the Apostle Paul is about to deliver his farewell speech one of the most magnificent and memorable of the farewell speeches found in the Bible. We're going to be examining it in parts today, Lord willing, next Sunday and the Sunday subsequent. But here we'll begin with verse 17, take it down through verse 24. And the Apostle Paul, he's there, and the physician Luke, he's there, and he's penning his observations, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write down what it is that's occurring. And here now we find these words. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. 
But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This begins the farewell speech of the, of the Apostle Paul. Let's look to our Lord together this morning in prayer. Father, as we're coming into your presence, whether it be present in this building or via live streams, subsequent viewings, or the course of the days and weeks to come, Lord, what we want now is for your hand to be upon one and all. We want to be a, have a sense of a stirring of the Holy Spirit. We want to have a sense of your glory, the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. We want to have the long span of creation through the fall, through redemption, resurrection of Christ and onward into the future to before, stand before us right now as we, as we think about the God who stands outside of time, yet the God who is deeply involved with time. This is astounding. We're not here to be self-focused. Our worship is God-focused. We need to have our, our spirit, we need to have our eyes lifted high. This is where we gain perspective for everyday living. We came into this world sinful by nature. You send Jesus Christ to die for our sins. You teach us that salvation is only found by putting faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And I pray that those within this building and the services today and those that are, that are watching via technology are coming to grips with the significance of what it means to have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ. These moments are significant. See the tears at night resting on pillows that no one else sees. You see the rumbling of the spirit and the struggles of the mind. We can't even decipher, but you alone fully understand. You know us better than we know ourselves. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. So again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. The date was April 19th, and the year was 1951, when one of the great farewell speeches in America's history began to unfold. As General Douglas MacArthur took the, took the rostrum, he would say, Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, and distinguished members of Congress, 
I stand on this rostrum with a deep sense of humility and pride, humility in the weight of those great architects of our history who have stood before me, pride in the reflection of that this home of legislative debate represents human liberty in the purest form yet devised. And then he would proceed to unpack for Congress years of experience as he pondered the ways and the challenges of navigating through life with the dangers and the difficulties of warring humanity. He would end with these words, I'm closing my 52 years of military service. When I joined the army, even before the turn of the century, it was the fulfillment of all my boyish hopes and dreams. The world has turned over many times since I took the oath at West Point, and the hopes and the dreams all have since vanished. But I still remember the refrain of one of the most popular barracks ballads of that day, which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And like the old soldier out of that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. And he ended with a simple goodbye. Now, the Apostle Paul has just dedicated three significant years, vital years, dynamic years of his life, pouring himself into the church in Ephesus, pouring himself into the leaders of Ephesus. And now what you and I will find is that the leadership is wanting to spend time with the Apostle Paul. They're going to make their way toward him. There's reasons for this. But what I want to do as we begin to explore these verses this morning together, what I want to do is to draw out three essentials that I see here in the opening verses of this farewell address. They'll relate to the way in which you and I are to impact not only this generation, but generations to come, Classmates, colleagues, children, grandchildren, neighbors, people in the community near and far. What we want to be able to do, in essence, is to take what I'll call the baton of grace and place it in the hands of others as we run this relay of life. So this morning, I want to draw out three what I will call essentials of biblical leadership. It's found in these verses. And the first is found in verse 17 down through verse 21. 
as you and I, as we reconsider this morning how to equip others for, for biblically-based leadership, I want to begin by noting with you here the example that needs to be set. You and I are to set an example. Paul set an example, and it needs to be understood just how he went, ago, went about doing that. So now notice where we begin in verse, in verse 20, in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. Well, what we're going to have to do at this point is that we're going to have to get ourselves positioned in Miletus, don't we? Get a sense of where it is in relationship to Ephesus. So look at the map that appears now on the screen. And as the map appears on the screen, here's Ephesus right here. And due to the terrain, what we will find now is that the leadership of the church of Ephesus is going to have to take a bit of a roundabout, which tends to be the nature of life itself. If you're going to be a leader, not everything is a direct route, you see. He, they take the roundabout and begin to make their way towards Magnesia and then head southward, southwestward, until they then go due south and make their way towards the prosperous city of Miletus. And there's Paul. Paul's been positioned there with seven co-workers. One of the seven is a man named Timothy. And the books First and Second Timothy were written to him. Timothy now has opportunity to listen carefully, to watch and observe how Paul, in essence, takes the baton of grace and now places it upon in the hands of the next generation of leaders that stand there. But right now it's the seven. The seven that have made their way down the shoreline towards Miletus. Why is he there? And why doesn't he just head northward to Ephesus? After all, it would give him opportunity one more time to be able to minister into that very strategic city. He spent three years there, you know. A few reasons. One. One reason is that he is taking with him, along with the others, financial resources to the, to the under-resourced church in Jerusalem that's going through a time of severe famine. Second reason, Ephesus was a place where a riot occurred, and Paul would not be popular in that setting. A third reason, though, 30 miles away, he knew that if the men made their way from Ephesus down to Miletus, he could keep an eye at the same time on the harbor to make certain that if the ship arrives a little sooner than anticipated, he would be able to leave. A leader has got to be well aware of timing, well aware of circumstances, and take into account the terrain and think strategically about ways in which you can impact in the time period that God gives you. Meanwhile, there's the leaders of Ephesus. How do they get there to Miletus? Look at the next that appears on the screen. It's called the Magnesian Gate. 
you can still see it today if you spend any time in Ephesus following the footsteps of the Apostle Paul and his movements. And it was there that the men would have made their way out of the city, the city where the riot had taken place, where there was pushback against the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the craftsmen had felt threatened because they were involved in idol-making. And now they were worried if people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, their business would, would go bankrupt. They continue their journey. It's about 30 miles. And when you get about five miles, five miles outside of Ephesus, you're going to see this millstone that appears on, on the road there to this day and age. It tells you you're about five miles outside of Ephesus at this point. And so they take that into account as they continue on their way. Directional sign. And as they continue on their way, and you and I are walking at this point in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, well, the terrain gets a little sparse. The footing, you're going to have to watch your step. You're making your way towards Miletus, and here's a picture of the road that you and I would be walking. It's a road that the Apostle Paul would have walked it's a road now that the leaders of Ephesus are about to walk, and there's going to be a convergence that takes place as the Apostle Paul now is going to be involved with passing the baton of grace to the leadership at hand. If you're a leader of Awana, you hold in your hand the baton of grace. If you're a youth leader, you hold in your hand the baton of grace. No matter what your responsibilities are, whether it be a parent, grandparent, at work, in this congregation, in this community, consider what you have with regard to knowing God's word. You've got the baton, but you are running a relay. It's meant to be passed on. The baton's about to be passed on. You're up now, you see, to verse 18. And as you make your way to verse 18, they have now come to him. You and I are told when they came to him, it's not they who speak, it's Paul who speaks. Leaders take initiative. They're proactive, not passive. He takes the initiative and says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. That means then, when you look very carefully at the opening phrase, verse 18, when he says, you yourselves know, you yourselves is placed in the emphatic position in the Greek sentence. And furthermore, when he says, you know, the wording you know carries with it a very intimate knowledge of the Apostle Paul. They have had opportunity not to view Paul from afar. They have had opportunity now to be exposed to the way in which Paul has navigated through the trials and the challenges and the difficulties of life. Allow people to get close to you. They're reaching out for a baton. You're holding a baton. 
He might be a youth leader, worship leader. Now, they've had opportunity to watch and observe. Might be your children, might be extended family. What is it that they know when life gets tough about you? Do you stand for Jesus? Or you start distancing yourselves from your Lord? Notice what he's to say to them. You yourselves know, and now they're thinking about what we know as Acts 19, where a riot broke out because the Apostle Paul represented the good news that Jesus has died for our sins that would have obliterated the, the commercial sector of Ephesus because so much of their economy depended upon the craftsmanship of making idols. Now, when you share the good news, it's very possible that something's about to be obliterated. Something is going to be challenged. Life's going to be threatening. Pass it on. You yourselves know, and now they know the intimacy of, by which the Apostle Paul has maintained a deep relationship with God despite the trials of life, how I lived among you, not away from you. And so those that are close to you this morning, they observe, they watch, and they ponder as the years go by. He says, the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, three years, and he was representing Jesus that first day. He's representing Jesus now on this last day. As in verse 19, you and I are now told, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Pause. Samuel Brengo, who was introduced as the great Dr. Brengo, had this in his diary. And J. Oswald Saunders, in his brilliant book, Spiritual Leadership, records it for you and for me. Brengo had written in his diary, if I appear great in their eyes, after one occasion when he was introduced as the great Dr. Brengo, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him. And helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me but I am so concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it. He used it. And the moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. People, this ministry is not meant to be old iron. 
the axe is continuously sharpened by the word of God. Our lives are continuously sharpened by the trials and the difficulties and the challenges of life. And through it all, there's someone in your life right now who has their arm extended and their hand wide open as they're waiting in the relay of life for you to pass on the baton of grace because they know they intend and are going to have to share it with others. This is what leadership is all about. Not retaining, but releasing. Not retaining the work for our glory, but releasing what we are doing for God's glory, imparting to others what it is that they are being called to do, all for God's glory, all for God's grace. There are no coincidences in the Miletus of your life experience There's a convergence that takes place as people now are pondering, how did you handle the trials of life? What was it that produced tears that rolled down your cheeks? It happened, he said, in verse 19, to me, through the plots of the Jews. Timothy's listening carefully. He's thinking about all the various times where he has had first encounter experiences with the plots and the pushback that the Apostle Paul has experienced in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Later, when Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he would, with the significance of full-spectrum discipleship being presented pen these thoughts. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he would be able then to do this because he saw firsthand how this was being done, where at Miletus, the Apostle Paul was doing this with men who, understanding the relay of life, had come those 30 miles in order to have the baton passed. And you see in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, as you could see in your worship folder this morning, as you ponder that verse, there Paul envisages four steps in handling the truth. It's Christ to Paul, Paul to Timothy, Timothy in turn to faithful men, and faithful men to others. And where would, the, would Timothy be able to gain firsthand experience in how this happens? At Miletus. What's your Miletus? And where is it that you will find people in your life experience that have the opportunity to see how you pass on the baton? This is what leadership is all about. Not retention for our glory, but release for God's glory, releasing so that others in turn have the opportunity to utilize their skills, utilize their gifts, all for God's glory, for humanity's well-being. Now, what I want you to see here is that the Apostle Paul is demonstrating how you do leadership in 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 small group settings. There is what I will call 
review, and there is what I will call preview. Our pastors, we gather together on Monday mornings, and we do a review of the prior week, and we do a preview of the coming week. Where does this come from? This passage. For many years, I've experienced what I will call second Mondays with elders and deacons that are interested in coming, where we gather together in a larger circle and and we ponder the significance of what matters most, taking on various topics that will be impactful, not only for the now, but for the tomorrows of life. This is what Paul is doing, and this is where we get the review preview sessions from. And so now, reviewing, he goes on to say, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Pause. You're up to verse 20. Notice he says that he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And you say, and you ask the question, well, Gary, what was it that he was unwilling to shrink back from? that he considered to be profitable. Well, take the word shrink found in verse 20, draw a line down to verse 27, which Lord willing we'll get to next week, and notice there it reads, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He played all the keys of the piano of the gospel of grace. Not merely the treble clef, not merely the bass clef, all the keys. Likewise, that's why we, in our expositions, week by week by week, we do Older Testament and Newer Testament so that we get the entire, the whole counsel of God, not partial counsel, not being selective, but allowing all of it now to come bearing upon life circumstances. People need this, you see. So he says in 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything That was profitable. And now here it comes. Notice with me, there are three pairings that leap out at us in the way in which the Apostle Paul is looking to grip the attention of those that are standing around him at Miletus. The first pairing, what I'll call public and private teachings. Teaching you in public and from house to house. Where did he do it in public in Ephesus? At the Hall of Tyrannus. Why he was using a secular setting to be able to communicate sacred truths. When he could no longer communicate in the synagogues, he would make his way then into settings such as Tyrannus to be able to teach truth. But also in homes. And so he would go into various what we will call life groups and be able to teach the good news so that the baton of grace was being passed, public and private, a second grouping. Notice furthermore that it goes on to say here, Jews and to Greeks. Not Jews to the exclusion of Greeks, not Greeks to the exclusion of Jews. Now what you and I have to find is this. Not only are going to be those who we might feel like a close identity with, there will also be those that we say, well, that's not necessarily the kind of person I normally hang with. 
But notice how inclusive he was and how expansive he was in his circles of communicating the gospel of grace. It was both Jew and Gentile. Now ask yourself, in your work setting or in your relational settings, do I create unnecessary shrinkage of the circles of relationships to keep grace from being communicated effectively? He's teaching, publicly and privately, first pairing. Jew and Gentile, Greek, second pairing. Repentance and faith, third pairing. Repentance, the negative. Faith, the positive. Faith needs an object. And the object is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's teaching now in a very pivotal, strategic, powerful way of what matters most, of who matters most. He's focused upon Jesus. Former professor of mine, Dr. David Wells, he wrote these words. The fundamental requirement of the Christian leader is not a knowledge of where the stream of popular opinion is flowing, but a knowledge of where the stream of God's truth lies. Let me say it again. The fundamental requirement of the Christian leader is not a knowledge of where the stream of popular opinion is flowing, but a knowledge of where the stream of God's truth lies. And now the Apostle Paul, publicly and privately, Jew and Gentile, combining the negative and the positive, the negative rep, uh, repentance, the positive faith, does this. And he does this in a setting that God has placed him in while he's simply waiting for his ship to arrive. Take advantage of those opportunities in life. Instead of waiting for the ship to arrive and jumping aboard, even in the waiting times of life, look for opportunities to pass on the baton. Where did he do it? There's a setting that you and I might want to walk into if we were doing a tour. Maybe we can do this at some point, following in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. It's called the Agora. Appears on the screen now, Lord willing. And in the Agora, what you and I see here is the setting that people could still walk in today. The Agora was, well, it was the marketplace. Today we've got the malls, but they had the marketplace then. And you walk around, you say, ah, oh, that's where these men from Ephesus came and took in the truths that the Apostle Paul was sharing. And so they're doing the review now, and they're thinking back over all that they observed and all that they heard as the Apostle Paul taught and spoke of God's grace. We're told that when Benjamin Franklin wanted to interest the people of Philadelphia in street lighting, he didn't try to persuade them by talking about it. You know what he did? He went and hung a lantern on a long bracket before his own door. And then he kept the glass brightly polished, carefully hung it each night, darkness approaching, 
People wandering about in the dark streets saw Franklin's light a long way off. And before long, they began to say to one another, I think I'm going to get one of those. So one after another after another. It didn't take long before Franklin's neighbors began placing lights and brackets before their homes, the writer tells us. And soon the entire city awoke to the value of street lighting, took up the matter with interest and in enthusiasm, and now they were able to see light in the midst of the dark. This is what God does. He equips this generation to pass on the baton of light to the next generation so that we can penetrate the darkness with the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. He has died for your sins, died for my sins. There's our first essential. We're considering here how to equip others for biblically-based leadership. You look at the example that needs to be set in 17 down through verse 21. All of that was a review. But now here, what comes next in verses 22 and 23? This is your preview. I want you to see, second of all, the risks that need to be taken. Because if you're going to be involved in leadership, if you're going to pass on the baton to next generations, if you're going to influence the culture and school, at work, neighborhoods, and beyond, you've got to be willing to take the risk. No matter what people might say in return, what they might think, how they might respond, who is it right now that you seem to be rather concerned with taking the risk and talking about what matters most to that individual? Look at what the Apostle Paul is about willing to do, he's willing to do here in 22. And 23 starts with a starts with an and now. You're going to see him taking a deep breath, and he's looking now at the seven, but perhaps Timothy in particular, who will eventually be the pastor of the elders that are currently here in Miletus, and will head back to Ephesus, taking this baton with them. Behold, he says. Again, it's a visual word communicating verbal truth. And then he makes the most astonishing, astounding statement. I'm going to Jerusalem. Bags are packed. We want to make certain that that under-resourced church in Jerusalem is going to be blessed by the financial resources that we've been carrying. I'm waiting for the ship to arrive. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem Look at what he says next. Constrained by the Spirit. You ever felt as though you are just so consumed by, so controlled by, so constrained by the Spirit, the one that inspired the Word of God found as you open up the text. Now, you say, Paul, should you? But back in Acts chapter 19 of verse 21, the Apostle Paul, Luke, physician, informing us of these words, 
Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And he would, but on God's terms, not necessarily pause as a prisoner, not a free man. So now here's the Apostle Paul, and he's doing a review in verses 17 through 21. He's doing a preview for this leadership in 22 and 23. And likewise, if you're a parent, great opportunity in leadership matters. Do a review of what God has done in this family through the years, and a preview of this family as to what could be coming our way, and remind them that the God who was there with us yesterday is the God who will be with us tomorrow. As you're standing at the harbor and you're waiting for your own ship to arrive, you see. So now, we also have our end nows. We've got our beholds. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit. And isn't this the way it is in life? Not knowing what will happen to me there. Now take the word no, used strategically by Paul in this teaching setting. Earlier he had said with regard to the elders, they knew. They knew what he was all about. But now in in this particular verse he's saying, and I don't know what tomorrow will be all about. And that might be just where we're at right now. You just continuously adjust the sails, allow the winds to blow, and you keep making your way forward, even if it's zigzags, to where it is that God is calling. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except in verse 23, that the Holy Spirit, he's so dominated, you see, by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. And he got that from the get-go when he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and as the Savior, a writer describing Martin Luther, among the most fearless men who ever lived, tells us when he set out on his journey to the setting you and I in history we know as Vim's, to face questions and controversies regarding the teaching of salvation by grace through faith in Christ's finished work alone. He said, you can expect from me everything save fear, irrecantation, I shall not flee, much less recant. But his friends warned of the dangers and some begged him, don't go. But Luther, the writer tells us, would not hear of it. Not go to Vims, he said. I shall go to Vims, though there are, were as many devils as tiles on the roofs, quote unquote. What that means then is that if you are, if you are being set apart to be a leader in the home, the extended family, in the neighborhood, in the church, in the region, politically, on and on, You're going to face opposition. But what we want to be able to say is that where there is opposition, there's opportunity. And where there is opportunity, there's opposition. 
And the evil one wants to thwart whatever forward movement is about to take place. You accept the risks that need to be taken. But if a church is to be cutting edge, and if the people of a congregation are to be cutting edge, then we accept the responsibilities at hand to be able to communicate truth, changeless truths, and changing times. That's what the Apostle Paul faced. That's what we face. So there you have now the example that needs to be set in 17 through 21. Second of all, the risks that need to be taken in 22 and 23. But thirdly and finally, the gospel that needs to be proclaimed in verse 24. Watch how this unfolds for you and for me. He starts with the but. He's offering a contrast. Right after having said that in every city, imprisonment, affliction await me, he now states unequivocally in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. He's not self-serving. He's God-serving. What's he about to say? If only I may finish my course. He doesn't say, if only I can just start my course. No, he sees already what the final objective is. Start with the end in mind. Likewise you, likewise me. Always keep an eye on what is the destination. You're taking the gospel and you're communicating it to one who communicates it to the next, who communicates it to the next. You do it publicly and privately. For Paul was Jew and Gentile. You combine repentance and faith. See how balanced he was with his threefold combination. And then he adds this, that the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And the gospel is the good news, not the old news, not the bad news, not the fake news. The gospel is the good news of what? The grace of God. And what is grace? God's unmerited favor to you and me, that we come into this world as sinners, and God sent Jesus to die for our sins. We don't deserve that, but Jesus came to die for you and for me. And so we're to receive that grace, Jesus as Lord and Savior. Clara Barton was involved with the Red Cross as a nurse. She worked in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. When Colonel Theodore Roosevelt came to her, and she was he was asking her if he could buy some food for the sick and wounded men that were under his command. And she said no, adamantly. Roosevelt had heard about her gracious spirit. He was troubled. He loved his men. He was willing to die for them. He was ready to pay for his, out of his supplies, out of his own pocket. So he asked, well, how can I get these for my men? They need food. And this woman responded, just ask, Colonel. Ask. 
Ah, oh, said Roosevelt. Then I asked for them. And he got it. All of them. All at once. And in his writings, as he reflected upon Clara Barton, he made note of the fact that what she did was gracious. She didn't charge Roosevelt. The food had already been purchased in advance. Your salvation is purchased at the cross of Jesus Christ. Pass on the baton. Be a leader. Be proactive. Review it, preview it, and let one and all know God is sovereign, God is gracious, God is good. We live for him. Let's stand together. We're talking leadership, Father. And we think of the greatness of Jesus Christ. He didn't retain glory. He released what he had in the heavens to come to earth to die for our sins. For any of us that are prone to want to retain personal glory, it's time to release it. Release the baton of grace, allowing others around us with outstretched arms and wide open hands to take it bring it to others, who will bring it to others, who will bring it to others. Full spectrum discipleship as we impact this county and beyond for Jesus Christ. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.